bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, April 5th, 2016. As we await the second of three Government Accountability Office, or GAO, reports on the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit, this Week in History series will feature another GAO report on the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit. This week, 19 years ago, April 9, 1997 to be exact, the GAO, which was then known under its earlier name, the General Accounting Office, publicly released a report that assessed the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit program. The report was requested by then-chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, Bill Archer. The report provided an overview of the program and the tenant population served, and it reviewed the oversight role provided by the IRS and credit allocating agencies, as well as making suggestions on ways to enhance the program's success. Now, that report concluded, and I quote, the low-income housing tax credit program has stimulated low-income housing development in the United States, and states' implementation of the allocation process generally meets the requirements of the Internal Revenue Code. Now, in referring to this report, Chairman Archer noted, and once again I quote, After reviewing the GAO report, it appears that the housing projects using the credit are benefiting the right people, households with very low incomes. Well, we will look forward to the next GAO report that we do expect to be coming out in the next month or so, and then the third report we expect to come out early next year. Now, turning now to this week's podcast, our general news section begins with a brief update on the presidential primary races. Then, I'll discuss how some experts predict the next president could affect the chances of comprehensive tax reform. In our low-income tax rate section, I'll discuss the 2016 income limits and the amount of low-income tax rate authority each state will get. I'll also share a milestone of HUD's Rental Assistance Demonstration, or RAD, program. In New Markets Tax Credit News, I'll discuss how you can comment on regulations that require banks to report community development investments to the OCC, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. In our Historic Tax Credit section, I'll talk about two bills to authorize more funding for the Mississippi State Historic Tax Credit Program. And we'll close out with the Renewable Energy Tax Credit News, where I'll discuss how the Renewable Energy Investment Tax Credit could affect the amount of energy storage in the United States. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, I want to share some updates on the presidential primary races. Today, Republicans and Democrats are vying for delegates in the state of Wisconsin. There are 42 Republican delegates up for grabs. A portion of the delegates are awarded winner-take-all statewide, and a portion are allocated winner-take-all by congressional district. Going into today's primary, Donald Trump has 752 or so delegates, with Ted Cruz having approximately 469 delegates, and John Kasich has approximately 144. I should note, Marco Rubio, who has ceased his campaign for president, has about 173 delegates. Now, I say about or approximately with these estimates because there's a number of variations depending upon where you look and the current 
status within a particular state. Uh, these numbers come from the Green Papers. It's greenpapers.com, a great website for tracking the delegate counts of the various candidates. Now, a Republican candidate needs 1,237 delegates to claim the nomination. Trump needs about 485 delegates of the approximately 877 still available in order to reach that 1,237 threshold. However, of these remaining delegates, of the remaining 877, 90 or so will go to the Republican convention unpledged. That means of the remaining available pledged delegates, Trump needs to win over 60%. Absent that, Trump would go into the convention short of the 1,237 needed. In such a case, in order to win on the first ballot at the Republican convention, uh, Donald Trump would need to win over some of the approximately 150 unpledged delegates and potentially some of the Rubio delegates to the extent they became available. So, today's Wisconsin results will play a key role in Trump's efforts to strengthen his drive for the nomination or to increase the likelihood of a contested convention in July. Now, on the Democratic side, Wisconsin offers 86 delegates, and they're awarded on a proportional basis. Before today's votes, Hillary Clinton has about 1,700 pledged delegates and superdelegates out of the 2,383 needed for the nomination, and Bernie Sanders has just over 1,000. Taking a look at the bigger picture of the race to the White House, how does a Republican or Democratic president affect the likelihood of tax reform in 2017? Well, according to a recent survey of Washington tax insiders, there will be a much greater chance of comprehensive tax reform if Republicans control the Senate, House, and White House. And many of you have heard me say this publicly as well, so I am in agreement with the results of this survey. Now, if a Democrat becomes the next president, or if Republicans win the presidency but lose the Senate majority, then the chances of a major tax overhaul drop significantly. In any case, Republican leaders are already laying the groundwork for future tax reform. Speaker of the House Paul Ryan is planning for the House to approve business and individual tax plans this summer in preparation for a new president. House Ways and Means Tax Policy Subcommittee Chairman Charles Bustani has announced a series of hearings to evaluate tax reform options. Now, the first hearing was last month on March 22nd, and it focused on how policy reform can create jobs increase paychecks, and expand opportunities for Americans. Among the proposals were ideas to move from a primarily income-based tax system to a cash-based or consumption-based system. Now, while this is just one proposal, and a long shot at that, moving away from an income-based tax system would greatly affect many tax credit programs. That kind of goes without being said, because they offer a credit against income tax liability, programs affected would include the low-income housing tax credit, new markets tax credit, historic tax credit, and renewable energy tax credits. Now, the next subcommittee hearing will focus on reforms within an income-based tax system, and that hearing is scheduled for next Wednesday, April 13th. In affordable housing news, HUD last week released its fiscal year 2016 income limits. These income limits determine income eligibility for HUD's assisted housing programs, such as public housing, Section 8, Section 202, and Section 811. Now, overall, HUD said that the U.S. median income decreased from 2015 to 2016. The national non-metropolitan median income limits also declined. 
Now, as you know, HUD also released the Multifamily Tax Subsidy Projects, or MTSPs, income limits. Now, these income limits are used to determine qualification levels and to set maximum rental rates for low-income housing tax credit and taxes and bond finance properties. Overall income limits are trending down in 2016 from 2015. More specifically, the average decrease in the MTSP 50% income limits was 0.5%, about half a percent. Now, existing low-income housing tax credit projects in counties that experience decreases are held harmless, meaning they do not have to reduce uh, their qualifying income levels or their gross rent. However, new projects will have to use the lower 50% MTSP amounts. Now, HUD did continue its policy of capping decreases in the 50% MTSP at 5%. So basically, it can't go down more than 5%, and it capped the increases at the greater of either two times the change in the national median income or 5%. Now, since the national median income decreased from 2015 to 2016, then the applicable cap on the decrease was 5%. Now, 306 of the 2,599 areas, or about 12% of areas, experienced declines in income that were actually limited by this 5% decrease. But for this 5% limit, these areas would have had even larger declines in income. Now, 174 areas, or about 7%, had their increases capped at 5%. That means that without this policy, 7% of the areas would have had larger year-over-year increases in income limits than 5%. Now, as I noted, because of the hold harmless policy, the income limit for any county that had a decrease is held harmless at the prior year's amount. Now, in looking at overall data, after adjusting for hold harmless and Harris Special, the average income increase across all areas was about three-quarters of a percent, or 0.74%. However, only about one-quarter of these areas will actually see an increase, and nearly 74% of these areas will have no increase in income or rent limits. So basically, a quarter of the areas will see an increase in income, three-quarters won't, and the average across all is about three-quarters of a percent. Now, you can find both Section 8 and MTSP income limits at our website at www.taxcredithousing.com. Now, there's a lot to digest with these new income limits. And if you want to learn more about how income limit changes could affect your properties, be sure to register for the Novogratic Rent and Income Limits and your tax credit property Back to Basics webinar. The webinar will be held next week on Wednesday, April 13th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Now, we're also updating our online Novogratic Rent and Income Limit Calculator, and I'll be sure to let you know as soon as the tool is ready with the new data. In the meantime, if you have any questions, please contact my partner, Thomas Dagg, in our Metro Seattle office. In other news, the IRS last week updated state population estimates for 2016. These population numbers are used to calculate the amount of low-income housing tax credits and private activity bonds states and U.S. territories can issue. The IRS's figures are based on data that's published by the Census Bureau before the beginning of this calendar year. Now, back in October, IRS Notice 2015-53 set the state credit ceiling at the greater of $2.35 times the state's population or 
the small state minimum of $2.69 million. And so, the recently announced state population estimates are the second piece of the puzzle to determine the allocation authority of each state. Now, the top five states in terms of allocation authority for 2016 are California with $92 million, and then Texas with $64.6 million, then there's Florida with $47.6 million, and then New York with $46.5 million. And rounding out the top five, Illinois with $30.2 million. Now, let's turn our attention to states or areas that will receive the $2.6 million low-income housing tax credit small state minimum for 2016. Those states are Alaska, Delaware, Montana, North Dakota, Rhode Island, South Dakota, Vermont, and Wyoming. Washington, D.C. is also on the list. Now, the U.S. territories that qualify are American Samoa, Guam, Northern Mariana Islands, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Regarding private activity bond caps, the calculation there is the greater of $100 times the state population, or about $302 million. The five states with the most bond allocation authority for 2016 are the ones with the most low-income housing tax credit authority, as you'd expect because it's population-based. That means California with $3.9 billion, Texas with $2.7 billion, Florida $2 billion, and New York about $2 billion, and then there's Illinois at $1.3 billion, rounding out the top five. Now, there are 25 states and U.S. territories that will receive the nearly $303 million small state minimum for bonds for 2016. Now, if you'd like to review the population figures on your own, you can find them by reviewing Notice 2016-24, and they're located on our website at www.taxcredithousing.com. In other news, HUD last week announced a milestone for its Rental Assistance Demonstration, or RAD, program. Since the program was launched three years ago, RAD has generated $2 billion in private investment to rehabilitate 30,000 units of former public housing. The RAD program allows public housing authorities and owners of HUD-assisted properties to access private financing to rehabilitate and preserve existing affordable housing. HUD estimates that more than $6 billion will be invested into the 185,000 apartments that are currently authorized to participate in the RAD program. HUD has asked Congress to remove the program cap so that any eligible public housing property can be preserved through the program. If you have specific questions about the RAD program, I'd encourage you to contact my partner, Nick Hain, in our Austin, Texas office. In New Markets Tax Credit news, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, or the OCC, yesterday published a request for comment on its proposal to extend rules concerning the investment in community development institutions by national banks. The OCC is seeking comment as part of the routine review process required by the Paperwork Reduction Act of 1995. Now, the rules allow eligible national banks to make investments in community development without prior approval of the OCC. The regulations allow the eligible banks to make investments and then make after-the-fact notifications to the OCC within 10 days. Regulations also allow a national bank to exceed the 5% limit for its total investment if it gets prior approval from the OCC. But that also requires an after-the-fact notification of each investment beyond 5%. There are other specific requirements for which banks are eligible to make the investments before notifying the OCC and how they make the notification. But all of them require the bank to notify the OCC within the 10-day window. 
As is the case with most reviews under the Paperwork Reduction Act, the comment request seeks input on whether the information the OCC collects is necessary and if there may be a better way to do it that is less burdensome for banks. Because many of these investments involve community development entities, it has a direct impact on the paperwork and administrative duties under the New Market Tax Credit Program. Now, comments are due within 60 days of publication in the Federal Register. And if you have any particular insights on the issue, shoot us an email to cpas at novaco.com. In historic tax credit news, two bills have been introduced to extend Mississippi State Historic Tax Credit Program. Now, Mississippi's historic tax credit equals 25% of qualified expenditures, but there's an aggregate program cap of $60 million. And that program ceiling has been reached. Historic preservation advocates are urging state lawmakers to raise the program cap because many proposed historic rehabilitation projects depend on the state incentive. As I mentioned, there are two proposals to authorize more funding for the state historic tax credit program. One, a House bill, would double the state cap to $120 million. Under that proposal, the 25% state credit would remain in place for the projects that have been certified as eligible for the credit December 31, 2031. If enacted, House Bill 1691 would take effect this July 1st. This bill has been referred to the Committee on Ways and Means. Meanwhile, the other bill to extend the state historic tax credit program was introduced in the Senate. The Senate bill would increase the state historic tax credit cap to $100 million. That's $20 million less than the House bill. Furthermore, the Senate bill has additional restrictions. The Senate version would also create an $8 million annual cap on the program, and the Senate bill would exclude single-family residential homes from using the credit. Now, Senate Bill 2922 has been referred to the Committee on Finance. If you'd like to read the text of both bills, go to www.historictaxcredits.com. And if you have any specific questions about historic tax credit programs in your state, please contact my partner, Charlie Ruda, in our Boston office. In renewable energy tax credit news, a report by a leading research company says that the recent extension of the investment tax credit could significantly increase the amount of energy storage paired with renewables in the United States. Now, the investment tax credit would have expired at the end of this year, but Legislation was passed in December that extends the investment tax credit through the year 2021 with a gradual decrease from its current 30% starting in the year 2020. A report by leading green technology media company GTM Research said that energy storage in the United States could increase 33% thanks to the extension. The report estimates an extra 500 megawatts, a half a gigawatt, of energy storage paired with renewable energy will come online by the year 2020 as a result of the investment tax credit extension. Most of that would be in the utility scale sector, as you'd expect. Now, storage does not qualify for the investment tax credit, but pairing storage with renewables allows projects to claim tax credits if they meet certain criteria. GTM Research estimates that solar installments will increase 54% compared to the previous situation with a tax credit expired at the end of this year. Both the Department of the Treasury and the IRS are considering whether storage should qualify for the investment tax credit. And in fact, the IRS issued Notice 2015-70 last fall seeking comments on what types of properties should qualify for the investment tax credit. GTM Research said that if storage paired with renewables was eligible for the investment tax credit explicitly, then the upside would be even bigger. 
This report highlights some of the indirect benefits of the investment tax credit extension. It shows that the economic impact of tax credit policy extends well beyond the industry specifically included. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. I invite you to join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. I'd also like to remind you that Novogratic is hosting the Private Activity Bond and 4% Local Housing Tax Credit Basics webinar this Thursday, April 7th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Sign up today at www.novaco.com. That's it for now. This is Michael Novogratic. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratic and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratic and Company, LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.